we're continuing our journey this morning through Faith Foundations, and this morning I wanted to talk about um, the chorus. Uh, Now, I couldn't think of a C before, and I want to give thanks to Anna for coming up with the word chorus, because it would pain me as a preacher if all of our series titles could not begin with the letter C. There would be something wrong about that. And so uh, we were talking about the chorus, but really, more specifically, we're talking about the heart of a worshipper. And it's something that is foundational uh, for us at this Vineyard Church. And if you've been journeying with us for a long time, you may remember about a year ago, Peter Hardy actually shared a really good message uh, on worship uh, about 10 months ago, months ago. And it's, it would sort of be good to hear that message after you've heard this one as a prologue or maybe an epilogue, I guess it would be, uh, and see these as two parts. Because what I want to talk about today is what happens within us when we're in the place of worship. What Peter talked about a year ago, I'll just give you a synopsis, uh, was first that we're created to worship, that you and I were made for a purpose. And one of those purposes is to bring glory to God and through uh, the act of worship. And if we were to place any effort or emphasis or value on anything, it should be worship because it's the most significant we can do most significant thing we can do this side of heaven. That's what Peter said uh, a year ago. And so that's really the backdrop that we're built to worship, we're made to worship, and it's one of the most significant things we can offer God as a response for everything he's done in our lives. But what I want to talk about today is why it's foundational and what it does within us when we go through that act of worship. And uh, being a vineyard church, uh, we were set up many, many years ago. Uh, Many of you will know the names John Wimber, but it's actually Carol Wimber uh, that, that... heard from the Lord on this this matter of worship being so central to us as a vineyard church and um, she had this this vision and this picture of God drawing them into deeper worship and she got frustrated and she said God all I feel like we do is worship what do you mean we need to be more worshipful what do you need mean we need to be deeper on our worship and she realized that in worshiping alongside a guy called Carl Tuttle it was when they focused on singing to God directly rather than about where we stand in relationship with our faith that they found a deeper intimacy. And that might seem like a subtle distinction, but going from I-focused worship to him-focused worship makes all the difference. That actually so often we can look at building ourselves up and it's not wrong to do that. You ought to edify yourself. You ought to encourage yourself. David even speaks to himself in the Psalms. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, he tells himself to get into a place of blessing and praise to God. Not wrong to do those things, but actually when we focus our attention, not so much on where we're at, but on who God is, we see a shift in intimacy. We see a shift in depth. And if you want to get closer in your relationship with Jesus, and by closer I mean more intimate, more, more closely aligned with the heart of God, more in the place of understanding what it is to give yourself over to him, it happens in the place of worship. There's a transformation that takes place in our hearts when we do those things. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be spending a bit of time this morning uh, in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read that a little bit later on, but if you've got a Bible, you can get ahead of time. Uh, If you haven't, it's going to come up uh, on screen a little bit later on. Um, But the first thing we see uh, with worship is that it moves us from within. It's something that happens that we maybe do practically or physically. We sing with our words, but it moves us from deep within our souls. When I was about 12 or 13, I was really into wrestling. Any wrestling fans in the room? Uh, there's even an applause, come on. 
So some of you remember it was known as WWF back then, the World Wrestling Federation, and then there was the kind of alternate, which was WCW, World Championship Wrestling. This is going to be a lecture in the history of wrestling this morning. Uh, and there was this one amazing event that happened, and it never happened again, uh, where it, they called it the World Wrestling All-Stars. And for one time in Birmingham, UK, they brought from America all of the classic wrestling All-Stars. And for my birthday, my brother had got me this as a surprise. And so we're traveling to Birmingham NEC. I have no idea what's going on. We approach the stadium, and I see Bret Hart, who was a classic wrestler. Another applause for Bret, the Hitman Hart. He's on the posters, and I think, wow, that would be great to go and see it. The penny hadn't dropped, that's what we were doing. Uh, and we arrived in the arena and the atmosphere was electric. I mean, it was off the wall. There was a guy called Booker T, again, one of the best wrestlers of all time. And these guys come out to big fandom. You know, there's lights, there's smoke, and there's pyrotechnics flying up from the stage, all sorts of dangerous issues going on in this entertainment venue. Uh, and so these, these wrestlers come down. And I kid you not, Booker T's bicep was bigger than my head. And as a 13-year-old, you are just amazed. And they're flying off the ropes. They're doing dives. They're doing elbow drops. And as a kid, you're thinking, this is amazing. This is real. You know, it's not real. It was all fake. And that... Oh, have, I, have, I just, have I just let the cat out of the bag? Some of you are like, it's what? It's fake? Yeah, no, unfortunately, it's not real. Uh, and so... This was a, an amazing time, but I've never been one who, who normally gets excited. Like, I, I meet celebrities now and then, and it's really funny because I have no idea who they are. Like, I, I was up in Manchester, a friend of mine introduced me to a Premier League footballer, uh, played for uh, Man United. I hadn't got a clue who he was. Uh, and so I was just like, oh, that's nice. And so I don't normally... I, you know, do you enjoy what you do? Like kicking the ball? I don't know. Uh, so it's, it's sort of lost on me, and... and uh, it was the same when I was 12 and 13. I'd see these, these wrestling all-stars, and I could feel the electric in the room, but it never really moved me. And then all of a sudden, as the night went on, I found myself screaming at the top of my voice by the, by the parade, trying to get autographs from these people that I've never met. And it's interesting that I've gone from being totally disinterested, not starstruck at all, over the course of two, three hours, to being in a place of pure electricity and fandom. And it's never happened to me since. I still don't get starstruck. But it's amazing how when you're caught up in the atmosphere or something, something from within takes place. And it sort of pushes you into expressing yourself in a way that you never normally would have. There's emotions and feelings that can rise up. And the question I've got for us this morning is, have you ever found yourself so moved from within that you overcame your inhibitions? In other words, so moved from within that you didn't care what people thought about you. You didn't care what you looked like. All that you wanted to do was express what was happening within you. And it got me thinking about this place of worship that actually we can feel that about all sorts of things. We can feel that about football. If you've ever been to a football match, you know, most of you are very well behaved, very polite people. But I guarantee you, if you're a football fan and you move yourself into a stadium and your team scores a goal, what happens? You lose your inhibitions, right? You stand up, you cheer, you shout, you sing some songs, you consider the lyrics afterwards and regret singing the songs. And so, or maybe for you it's not football, maybe for you it's Monopoly. What happens when you play Monopoly at Christmas with friends and family? You become a different person. I'm not, yeah, thank you. So my wife's nodding at me. Um, I'm not proud of it. We once made someone cry who wasn't playing. That's not easy to do. Um, 
but something happens when you get into this place uh, of emotion. Uh, we can experience these things. We can be moved by these things. But, you know, there's no substance to these things. They're shared human experiences for sure. But actually, when we come to the place of worship, what we understand is that we have so much more. We went to a McFly gig when Judah was three months old, which is a great thing to do with a baby. <laughs> and we stood in this crowd, and, and I, I was reflecting on this. It's a spiritual moment for me at a McFly gig. And people, again, they were losing themselves. And I just thought, you know what, how much more when we get into the presence of God? Like, here's this thing that's great, it's exciting, it's fun. But when it comes to the place of worship, we're moved from a place of substance. We're moved because actually this means something to us. The Jesus that we know has transformed our hearts and lives. He's given us grace, mercy, peace and love. He's given us forgiveness of our sins. He's put us in right standing with God and given us hope of eternal life. And yet I can cheer at a football match and they haven't given me any of those things. Well, actually, when it comes to being in the presence of God, I'm moved from within. And I got thinking about well, why, why do I sometimes disconnect in the place of worship and then this word entitlement came to me, and it's a word that we typically think is really a negative word. You know, we'll say, well, that person's really entitled. That's not a positive thing. But actually, there's two types of entitlement. There's two types of entitlement that affect us. The first one is a negative entitlement. It's when someone cuts in front of you in a queue. That's quite a negative thing to do. That's, and you, you're standing there thinking, well, who are you to jump the queue? But there's also a positive entitlement. The positive entitlement is when you go to see a doctor and you don't get what you need. And you're entitled to a better health care. You're entitled to contend for yourself. You're entitled for something more. And sometimes in, in our kind of comfortable Western world, we live in the place of entitlement. But we're not always sure when it's negative and we're not always sure when it's positive. We went to see the changing of the guard a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's fascinating because, you know, being um, somebody who's never seen it before, I just, I like to people watch and observe, and there's thousands of people at the changing of the guard. Turns out it's really popular, and then there was this woman with her grandson who, who clearly wasn't from the area, and she decides that it's okay for her to sprint across three lanes that had been blocked off in front of a parade of guards coming down, and then was flabbergasted when the police shouted at her. But as thousands of people watching this, what we're all seeing is negative entitlement. Like for some reason, everyone else had to obey the rules, but this person felt that it was okay for them to usurp all of the rules. And we look at that and go, well, that's entitlement. But actually, entitlement is far more than just an attitude. It's far more than just a behavior. It's far more uh, than something that we can judge when somebody cuts in line. Actually, it's something that can stop us entering into the place of worship. It's something that can affect us within because... When we think about worship, what we're thinking about is submitting our hearts and lives to God. And if someone tells me that I need to do something, what's my first reaction? It's actually entitlement, if I'm honest. Like, if you were to tell me to do something I don't want to do, my first response is, who are you to tell me what to do? Now, if we're honest, we're all like that, aren't we? Sometimes, if we're honest, we all get, you know, if someone tells you you have to do something, how do you feel? You get your back up a little bit, you get a little bit antagonistic. And if we're honest, that's sometimes that place of entitlement. And it can be a positive, it can be a negative. But, but when it comes to worship, when the Lord asks us to give us everything, to lay our hearts bare, to worship him in spirit and truth, we're not even aware of it, but sometimes entitlement can rise up. And actually, we want to do what's comfortable, not what is uncomfortable, because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We like to be in the place of comfort. But here's the thing about worship is it does have to cost us something and it does have to move us from that place of entitlement. It does have to be something 
that feels slightly uncomfortable. And I'm not just talking about when we sing, I'm not just talking about in the room, because worship is way more than songs. But it's something that ought to transform us from within. And when you've got changes taking place in your heart, that is not a comfortable process. Like when I was a teenager, I didn't really walk with the Lord. You know, I, I knew of Jesus, I'd been raised in church, but my heart was disconnected from God. My, my life isn't what you'd call a worshipful life. I would go through all the motions, but within, there was no change, because I was close to God. I was a little bit arrogant, I was too entitled, I was too hard-hearted. And when the Lord started to break my heart down, what happened was, it got really painful. Which is a weird thing because you think when I come into the presence of God, I should feel good. But actually inside, I was starting to churn. I was starting to ache a little bit. I was starting to cry from time to time. And what was going on? But what was happening is the Lord was breaking things within me. It was an uncomfortable process. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Luke 7. And uh, the word worship is one of these things that we take for granted. You know, Peter said it last year in his sermon series, and it is still true. We think we know what worship is. You know, if you Google the word worship, it comes up with images of people lost in crowds, arms lifted high, and that's wonderful. But I want to talk about really the worth of worship in our lives. Luke 7, verse 36 to 50, this is what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's home. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. If you're thinking this is a bit of a weird scene, it even was weird back then, right? I mean, I went shopping recently. I couldn't find an alabaster jar of perfume anywhere. I don't know how much they cost, but if you read elsewhere in the scriptures, I think it's in Matthew, uh, we're told it's about a year's wages. It's not a cheap bottle, right? It's not, it's not a high street uh, brand. It's not a, uh, a market knockoff, you know, the ones that burn your skin. Uh, it's not one of these cheap, nasty perfumes. This is something that was so rich, so powerful, uh, it cost a year's wages. And this woman broke this alabaster jar and she's pouring it out and she's weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. This is an uncomfortable situation. Right? And Jesus is around the house of some Pharisees, some religious leaders who are very prim, very proper, probably in the upper echelons. And this woman comes in and this scene just sort of takes over the dinner party. It's quite unusual. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Bit of hindsight. I mean, I, we, we've got the privilege of hindsight, but there's no such thing as someone who's not a sinner. I mean, that's a, a bit of the sweet irony, just as a side note. Like, there's no person who has not sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But anyway, so the Pharisee says he would know that she's a sinner uh, and she's touching uh, Jesus' feet. You'd know what kind of person uh, this is. Now, this is a great moment where there's going to be egg on the face of the Pharisees. It's going to be a, an awkward moment around a dinner party. In verse 39, when the Pharisee, I know we've read that. Uh, verse 31, two people owed money to a certain land. This is what Jesus said in response. She owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to, put them, uh, to pay them back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon the Pharisee replied, just the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. 
And Jesus said, you judge correctly. Now, it's hard not to think of the Lord's Prayer when you read this passage. Right? It's hard not to think of, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In fact, some translations say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it's interesting, Jesus brings this up and you start to think, well, actually, forgiveness is really the theme, not condemnation here. It's hard not to see that flash uh, of the text. Then verse 34 says this, Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. If there's one way to upset your host, right? If there's one thing you could do is go around their house and point out all their faults. That's, that's one great way. If there's another way of upsetting a religious host, it's telling someone their sins have been forgiven. So you've got two extremes going on. This, this dinner party has not gone how the Pharisees planned, I imagine. Uh, they're reclining at the table. This woman comes in. She breaks this alabaster jar. She's weeping. It's a scene, right? It's a moment that's uncomfortable. The Pharisees judge her quite harshly. And they don't even do it under their breath. They judge her quite publicly. Uh, they make the point, And Jesus just points out all of the issues in one moment. And in that, he challenges their heart. He challenges them from understanding what worship is, even though the word worship is never mentioned in this passage. The word worship in Greek is this. Uh, everyone can say it with me. I put a phonetic on the screen so you can learn a bit of Greek as we go. Everyone say hip hip. Uh, the word is this, proskuneo. Everyone say proskuneo. You're speaking Greek. Give yourself a round of applause. Uh, the reason we're going into the Greek is because sometimes the translation doesn't do it justice. Sometimes we get one word, but actually the original language of the book of Luke was Greek, and it's got a range of meanings. It's made up of compound words that develop over time. And the word for worship is this Greek word, but it's not just worship. It's way deeper than that. It's way more significant. It's layered. Pros means towards. Kineo means to kiss. So another way of saying this is that in the act of worship, I'm kissing towards. And actually, it's a deeper meaning. It kind of looks like this sort of down on your knees. It's very intimate. And it's sort of bowed forwards, facing towards the person you're worshipping. And so it goes from this idea of what we think worship is to something deep and intimate and powerful. And let's face it, a little bit uncomfortable. To kiss in a sense of worthiness and honour, proskuneo. And it doesn't appear in this passage, but essentially this woman in the presence of Jesus embodies worship by this definition. Because she falls at the feet of Jesus, she breaks an alabaster jar, she's weeping and crying over our Lord, and she washes his feet with her hair. You can't get more forward-facing to kiss than this. Did not mean to rhyme, that was cool. Uh, and that is the heart of worship. That is the, the substance of worship. That is the worth of worship that we see. And very quickly, the first thing you need to know is that worship is not cheap. 
It costs you something to be a person of worship. And again, I'm not talking about just singing. I'm talking about the lifestyle of a worshiper is not cheap. It will not be a comfortable process. In fact, the word in 2 Samuel 24, when it comes to King David worshiping the Lord, it says this, but the king replied to Araniah, no, I insist on paying fully for the field where he wanted to build an altar. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. In other words, King David was saying, I will not worship if this has not cost me anything. That's quite powerful. The word in the Greek there is teletheo, and it means I value at a price or I have honor and reference. And, and for the first century world especially, you couldn't separate the idea of honor from price, honor from value. And you couldn't really separate honor from worship. So another way of saying that is everything that has value in my life, in order for me to be a worshipper, needs to be directed towards God. Now we start to get very uncomfortable, right? Because if you were to show me your bank balance, I'd tell you what you value. If you were to show me your calendar, I'll tell you what you worship. Where you spend your time and effort and energy and resources. And this isn't to say it should go to all one place. Like This isn't a giving talk or anything like that. This is just saying, actually, does everything in my life reflect a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of honor towards God, a lifestyle of cost towards the Lord? And so the question really for us this morning is, what does my worship cost me? What, what does my worship cost me in terms of my reputation, in terms of my efforts, in terms of my time, in terms of my resources. You see, this woman who worships Jesus, she had everything to lose and nothing to gain. She had no guarantees when she came into Jesus' presence that this would be acceptable. She weeps before religious leaders who immediately judged her. This could have gone pear-shaped. This could have gone wrong. She could have been thrown out. In fact, she could have been harmed in some way. And not only that, she breaks an alabaster jar that's like a year's wages. I don't know what that means to you. That would mean something different for every person in this room. But that's not cheap. Imagine doing that at a cost of living crisis. She breaks this jar and it all could go wrong. She's laid everything on the line. This act of worship is expensive for this woman. The second thing is you see that it's costing her reputation. Not that she already had a good reputation because these guys didn't think well of her, but the woman didn't care about her reputation. It even says in verse 39, if he was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And the irony of the judgment is they didn't realize how far they were from God. That actually in judging this person from a distance, from a high and lofty space, they didn't realize that we're all in the same boat, right? We're all imperfect beings. We're all imperfect people. Yet sometimes we can behave a little bit higher and mightier than others. It creeps in very subtly, you know? Because we know the answer, right? We know the truth. We know the right way to go. And these other people, mm -mm, not so much. And if we're not careful, we use the grace and forgiveness we've received to be judgmental of others. I've been a Christian for a long time and I do that all too often. Sometimes I reflect on my week and I think, wow, actually, rather than being thankful and living a responsive life to God, I've sometimes used it to look down upon other people. And then I can sing my heart out on a Sunday morning, but actually, did that behavior in the week reflect someone who worships the Lord? Right? So like I can, I can sing. Oh, I can't really sing, but I can, 
I can try and sing on a Sunday morning and I can be passionate in, in my worship, but actually if my lifestyle denies the words that I speak, oh, that hits the heart, right? Because we can all say the right things. We can all speak the right words and we do it as one heart and in a wonderful context this morning. But if on a Monday, our lifestyle is the complete opposite to what we're singing, am I really worshipping the Lord? Am I really worshipping God? Am I more concerned about my reputation? Do I hide my faith? Do I shelter my words? Do I withhold prayer? Do I withhold encouragement? So I'll behave in a certain way in this room, but when I'm in work, it's a different context. I hold back. That's a challenge to me. King David in 2 Samuel, we won't read it this morning, but he danced before the Lord and his wife shamed him publicly because it was a humiliating process. But he said, I'll become even more undignified than this. That actually God is worth so much that I don't care about my reputation. And then back to this woman, she falls at the feet of Jesus. She takes the lowest position. She makes a scene, but she doesn't care because she knows who Jesus is. She knows who this man is. And so the last thing we can see here is position. She takes that position of a worshipper. She takes that role of a worshipper. And I don't mean arms stretched, uh, hearts abandoned is, is the most significant thing. You know, when we think of worship again, we think about what we've, we're doing this morning. We'll think about the time that's coming after this where we're singing. That, of course, is a way of worshiping, but it's so much more than an outward spread, an expression of an inward thing. It, it's more about is our heart malleable to what God is doing? And are our lives being transformed in the act of worship? Is everything in our life speaking and glorifying God? See, the Pharisees knew how to behave, but the woman knew how to worship. And I want, if possible, we can see the comparison between what they share. You see, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you provided no water for my feet. In comparison, the woman cried and cleaned my feet with her hair. In you provided nothing to freshen me up, but she poured perfume all over me. Uh, you gave me no greeting, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You disengaged, but she went all out with the most overtop display of worship that she could possibly muster. You see, our position can change our perspective. The Pharisees thought they were worshippers. They thought they were the religious righteous leaders of the day because that's the title they carried. That's the motion they went through. That's the way they behave. But it is the woman who demonstrates true worship. It is this woman that models the kind of worshippers that the Lord wants. And I'm not saying this morning you should be bringing alabaster jars and smashing them on the floor. John would have a nightmare cleaning those things up. Uh, I'm, not say, I'm not saying even that you need a physical outward expression of worship. It's wonderful. You're free to do that. If you want to kneel, if you want to sit, if you want to stand, if you want to reflect in our sung times of worship, it is wonderful to do. But actually what I'm talking about is a heart so malleable to God that it doesn't matter about your position in life. It doesn't matter about your reputation. It doesn't even matter about the cost. That everything in my life speaks to the glory of God. It speaks to the wonderfulness of who he is. It speaks to the majesty of his grace and mercy and love. Because I've received Jesus, because of the work that he's done in my life, let my whole life worship the Lord. Let my whole life speak of his glory, speak of his goodness. That we might live a worshipful life in every area. 
Okay, great if we get into that place of song worship, because actually what that does is that sets the scene. When these guys get up to worship, what they're not doing is performing to us. I think we know that, but, but let's just remind ourselves they're not performing. What they're doing is they're focusing their attention on the Lord, and they're saying, hey, church, will you come with me? Right? When, when they stand here and lose themselves in a moment of from what is within being displayed on the outside, they're saying, hey, come along as we glorify God because of what he's done in our lives, because of the way he's transformed us. That's the offer. But what that does is it sets us for the week. But actually, we want to be a worshipful people in all things, in every area of our lives, in our, in our finances, in our time, in our attention, in the way that we love other people, in the way that we encourage one another, in the way that we spur one another on, that we stand together as a people made for worship. And as Pete said a year ago, that is what we're built to do. I'm just going to invite the band to join me this morning. They're not a band, they're a worship team. I get told off for that all the time. Because, <laughs> right, I just, I've, I've even preached it this morning. They're not a band. What am I doing? Next week, I'm going to have to correct what I said this week and uh, make sure you don't miss that. But what does the worshipful life look like? I, uh, I hate the song Hosanna um, <laughs> by Paul Belosh. Um, and I used to be on the worship team. I used to play bass. I hate's a strong word. I dislike. Um, I, I, playing bass guitar, which I don't do anymore, by the way, just in case you're trying to recruit me. Um, years ago, and we would play this song and we'd have to do these riffs and Hosanna. I just don't, I don't know if I don't like the melody, the tune. The lyrics are fine, but I just didn't like the melody. It didn't sit well with me. It's not the kind of song I would choose. But hey, I wasn't the worship leader. So we had to play this song, Hosanna. Uh, I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to give myself a reminder of what it's like, but... <laughs> in that moment we'd play this song and oh, I just said to the team you know I really don't like this song and my worship leader turned around and said you know what Julian it wasn't written for you <laughs> yeah they'd love that uh, <laughs> and they're absolutely right it wasn't written for me because you know what the songs we're singing they're not about me they're about the Lord they're about singing of his goodness of who he is the reminding us of the truths of, of who we know God to be. The reminding us of the great work that he's done in our lives. And, and so on the bass guitar, I would jam out to Hosanna. I would play with all of my heart and all of my enthusiasm to a song that I greatly disliked because something shifted within where I started to understand this is not about me. This is about our Lord. And when I take the attention of I-focused Christian living which can be cultural Christianity, you know, it's kind of the stuff we do because we like it and we're used to it, and go from a, no, 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 I've been transformed by Jesus, so therefore I will worship in spirit, in truth, in song, in dance, in time, in effort, in resources, in attention. And I'll even allow God to make me uncomfortable from time to time. That is when we enter the place of worship. Again, to quote Peter, go back, download our app, uh, scroll back to the media and listen to it. It's about a year ago the most significant thing we can do this side of heaven is worship. And so maybe for you, I don't know, do you need to consider the cost of worship? Do you need to throw off reputation being a hindrance? Do you need to change your position? Is there anything holding you back, not just in sung worship, but in living a worshipful life? Do you need to consider the complacency of your heart? Do you need to be honest and say, am I actually sometimes entitled? And the reason that I don't give everything over to God is I want to keep a sense of control. That's a massive challenge in itself. Pick one. There's a lot there. Maybe you need to lift your hands as a sign of surrender. Maybe you need to be quiet for a little bit. We're very, you know, 
the loud stuff, that's, that's very obvious. Sometimes we need to reflect. If you're not very good at that, that can be a challenge. Maybe it's a challenge to be the church that looks to ensure our words match our lives in every area. And what would it look like to have our hearts totally abandoned to God? To allow our inner being, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, to be strengthened and shaped in the place of worship. To give glory to God in all things. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as you move our hearts, allow us to be transformed. And there's only really us that disallows that. We can harden our hearts to you sometimes. Even as Christians, we can shut it off. And you're a perfect gentleman. Your word says you stand at the door and knock. You don't drop kick it. You don't try and slam it open. You're just knocking on the door of our hearts. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we want to listen to the knock on the door of our hearts this morning. Would you transform us from within as you want to do, Lord? And as we do that, would we allow what's within to be shown on the outside of our lives in every single area that we might be the worshipful people of the Lord? In Jesus' name. Amen.